Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, you have a problem. Eleven problems, to be precise. Eleven fiendishly devised questions about Doctor Who, the like of which you can't possibly answer. Because you two sirs are not, shall we say, Doctor Who fans per se, like myself. You are mere laymen, mere watchers of the square glowing tube in the corner of your room. You've merely sucked in the atoms of Doctor Who and not taken it into your core like I have. And so you're going to be bereft, lost, hopeless. Is this ritual humiliation I've prepared for you tonight? Sirs, this is where we bury our friendships. Uh, well, me and Justin can still be friends because yeah. you're the one who's who's torturing us with Doctor That's Who. That's right, we can just press a button and you'll disappear forever. Oh, come on, guys. <laughs> Don't leave me out. <laughs> well, if we did, if we did, then we wouldn't have a show, would we? So you know, we're kind of stuck with that. But uh, yes, welcome, welcome, one and all, to our, our Doctor Who special, in which uh, Justin and I will be tangling our wits with the uh, fiendish and labyrinthine uh, possibility of of what we've decided to call who or what uh, in <laughs> celebration of the upcoming Doctor Who uh, celebrations. So, yeah. Ian, you are you are today's quiz master. Um, let yes. us let us fall to it with, without further delay. Well, gentlemen, Leo and Justin, uh, I thought I might open up with a uh, sort of warm-up question. Uh, this is just going to be a, a, a list four things, and you have to put them in order. That's the first question. Uh, instantly, point scoring-wise, you are going to be scored individually. However, I appreciate between the two of you, you only have half a clue what Doctor Who's about. Therefore, you are allowed to confer and strategically split points and strategically split your answers if you wish to do so after conspiring. However, scoring is still individual. Uh, you can also give the same answer. Uh, but anyway, um, your first question today is not a who or what, we shall get to the delights of that multiple choice quiz later. Uh, I just want to prove to you both, because there may be some doubt, that you don't know very much about Doctor Who. So I'm going to list, list four fairly well-known established facts about the Doctor and Doctor Who, and you have to put okay. them into order in which they were discovered in the series. Oh. Okay. okay. <clears throat> Fact number one. The Doctor is a Time Lord. Fact number two. The Doctor has two hearts. Fact wow. number three. The Doctor's home planet was called Gallifrey. And fact number four, TARDIS stands for Time and Relative Dimension in Space. Oh, these, are, these are mean, okay? <laughs> <laughs> are, you, are you asking for... Uh, Fairly you mundane facts. All of the in the first episode, so <laughs> it might even be down to minutes when, when they're... Uh, I, I, I assure you there is an 11-year span in the, in oh, the sequence of these revelations. Oh, oh, the wife's come in. Here we right. go. I'm just coming in to say... 
I, I, I know a certain fact about yeah, something. Right. Yeah, no, but he I don't know. Yeah, you're an audience member today, why? Okay. I'm, I'm just. How do you think Justin would feel with you if you're like thinking? Yeah, besides, you might be wrong. You don't no, know. I know this. <laughs> well, go and sit down. I'm doing this, not you. <laughs> Gentlemen, I, if I write about this, order. I, I, I better not become massively famous and go on QI or something. <laughs> oh, I don't think there's much chance of that. No, uh, I know, I'm just saying. And anyway, that was an interesting little slice into your uh, your uh, married life here. So, <laughs> Justin, uh, I, I will allow you to have the floor first. Go on, have a go. Okay, I remind you. Uh, no, no, I've, got, I've, I've wrote them down, you see. That's how I'm dedicated I am to this. You've done these quizzes um, before, haven't you? Now, I am thinking that I reckon TARDIS could have been left later. I think that's something you probably explained to your companions, and maybe that's uh, that's one of the later ones. Um, however, I do... Um, see, I'm getting the Peter Cushing thing muddled up, so I'm, I, I can remember him explaining it. Um, I think that surely the Time Lord thing is going to come up First, surely is that? I mean, uh, the first one of the early things they might, but oh my gosh, right? Okay, um, they might not have named the planet, you see, until later. That's what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So I think it's probably um, Time Lord Gallifrey, um, Tardis, and Two Hearts. That's my that's my stab at this. Okay. Right, I am going to take a slightly different tack on okay. this. And I am going to imagine um, that. Yeah, I think TARDIS was last. I think that the TARDIS was relatively late to the game. Um, And I think that the two hearts thing... Two hearts thing is kind of a throwaway thing you would put in. You know... Like the, you know, like lots of aliens in in science fiction, like Star Trek and things, you you quickly know that someone, although they, you know, because it's a, in television, aliens always look human. So you, you go, oh yes, but he's got you know seven ears or something. It's just that you know five of them are on his back or something, yeah. um, so that you never see them. Um, m- much well lampooned in in Hitchhiker's Guide. So I'm actually going to go with two hearts first. Um, I am forced. Uh, Gallifrey and Time Lord, that puts them in the centre. Which would be first? I would probably go the same way. I think it's much easier to say off the cuff that your character is a Time Lord than to decide what the planet they came from is called. So I'm going um, Hearts, uh, Hearts, Time Lord, Gallifrey um, and TARDIS last. Okay. So you, you were Hearts first, Time Lord, Gallifrey... And TARDIS last. Yes. Okay. Uh, Leo has two correct. Justin has none correct. That's a fantastic start. The correct oh, no. order, gentlemen. In the very first episode, the Doctor's granddaughter Susan explains that TARDIS stands for time and relative dimension in space. I mean, why do you think they would call it TARDIS in the first place? Um, 
That was in 1963. You have to jump ahead to 1969 in Pacta Troughton's last story to discover the Doctor is, in fact, Time Lord of said race of Time Lords. Uh, in 1970, uh, the Doctor is revealed under a medical examination uh, in John Pertwee's first story to have two hearts. And not until 1974 was, was the Doctor's home planet christened Gallifrey when uh, he was challenged to name it by Osantaran. Wow. I to Leo, but he wouldn't let me explain to it, that I know the TARDIS in, the, in its form is, is now in a box, didn't turn up till 1980, but the TARDIS itself has been around since the first episode, and that's what I was trying to say to Leo. Yeah, I know, I know that the TARDIS, the time machine's been there, and it's been called a TARDIS, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I thought that was from the first wow. episode. All right, fine. The only thing I'm going to get out of this personally, so yeah. that I, I can fine. carry on, uh, it's the fact that I guess that Time Lord came before Gallifrey, and that's yes. about it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear, that's pretty pissable. Well, that was, just, that was just our warm-up, gentlemen. Uh, should, should we press ahead with our first discussion? I want we, we, we did yes. kind, we did kind of have a rule that we weren't going to talk about ourselves in this podcast. It's really boring. Three chaps turn up yeah. and whittle on about their week. Uh, but in this instance, let's break that rule, and let's talk about your experiences in first encountering Doctor Who in the delight of your childhood back in the 80s and 70s. So, uh, do Leo, do you want to go first? Or? Uh, yeah, uh, my... Uh, what I recall is, I think, growing up in, in a house uh, where my father was a science fiction writer, that uh, it was presumed that I would watch Doctor Who. Uh, but unlike many children, I think, who probably kick against parental authority, I was I was quite happy to sit and watch the pretty lights on the thing. I remember Tom Baker and his scarf. And the, the Tom Baker era, I think I was a bit too young, wasn't really paying attention, didn't really... Stuff happened. There was a robot dog. It was cool. There we go. It happened. Um, the first story I actually remember sort of uh, engaging with or being scared by as children are supposed to be scared by Doctor Who was um, Peter Davison's and uh, Peter Davison one, The Black Orchid, um, which oh I watched. God, you could name it. Yes, which I watched with nostalgic, uh, with nostalgic misty eyes on UK Gold many years ago and went, really? I was scared by this. Really? <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, but that's the first one I really remember being being probably scared by. I don't really remember Colin Baker at all. Um, at all. That's very weird, because I was old enough to do so at that time. Well, he uh, had a year, didn't he? So, didn't yeah. He two years. He had, so it's probably not that surprising. Okay. He, he was there um, for three years, but only did, only did two or four series. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but then uh, Sylvester McCoy, I remember... Uh, yeah, no, I remember, but I remember the Sylvester McCoy era quite yeah. well. I did, I did watch uh, all of those. Uh, and the thing about it is that a lot of people were, I think, complaining about going downhill, and obviously that's when the cancellation came up. But to my mind, I maybe I was just at that perfect age. I hadn't. It was like this is Doctor Who. Get used to it. That's what it is. Yeah. But you know, people didn't, and then they cancelled it, and then they decided they'd made a mistake and brought it back. Yeah, you know, that kind of sums up my my experience. It goes from 
ooh pretty lights through yes I'm quite into this through a bit where I must have been drinking quite heavily which must have been disturbing at my age, young age uh, to a bit that I remember to the cancellation so there we go that's how ah. I was never really super into it actually I tell it oh, well no I was never really super into it but I had friends prior to Ian who were super into it and I attended one convention in which I saw the guy who played Davros speak in Cardiff Right. Um, and and bought um, the TARDIS technical manual off a, off the store. Um, and I also attended two <laughs> meetings of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society uh, in a building adjacent to Castle Gardens, as was in Swansea. So there we go. That was my fourth. Uh, I extent. was a member of that group. I never saw you. Uh, no, probably because I went to two meetings before you were... Because I would have gone when I was about 13, ah. 14. So you probably came in later. Yes. And I don't know what, I think I just, I think I was honestly, I think I probably would have continued to go and maybe had a happier life. But I was too lazy to turn up on a Saturday. I just kind of, and I thought as well, because it's the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, I felt that it was a bit, you know, I was, I, I, I watched it, but did I appreciate it? I wasn't sure. <laughs> yeah. so, I felt like a fraud. <laughs> So yeah, so that's that's me, Justin. Uh, well, so my my really kind of first doctor was Tom Baker, and I remember just you know being uh, just this kind of weird, very dark, somewhat disturbing thing. I seem to remember watching at some point in the in the seventies. So what was where, what was the Tom Baker years? Uh, nineteen seventy-five to nineteen eighty-one. Yeah. I want to say did quite a big stint, didn't he? So I doubt I would. So I wouldn't have been the early 70s, certainly, but probably mid to late 70s, I would have picked that up of being something, watching that quite young um, and being kind of enthralled uh, by the kind of, it was, it was genuinely quite creepy, Tom, but I, I, I was fascinated by him. Um, and I mean, I did, I, I'm, I know, I'm certainly not an expert, as, as has become <laughs> particularly aware in the last few minutes, uh, but I did watch a lot of Doctor Who. Um and um, I kind of, I guess I became more aware of it in the 80s, you know, as I'm kind of get, getting older. Um, but I do remember, um, the, the most thing I remember about Doctor is that one of my school friends, he had a plastic TARDIS with a Tom Baker figure that he turned around and he disappeared. And I was I was incredibly jealous of that. <laughs> it was a beautiful thing. Um, but, yeah, I remember fondly, I, I kind of, Peter Day, so I kind of, um, I, I watched and I... I I don't know. It was I, I was I'd lost a bit of something. I, I didn't enjoy it so much, um, but I do remember Colin Baker, and actually I quite enjoyed Sylvester McCoy um, later in the eighties. Um, and there were actually certain episodes I remember from, uh, very kind of memorable visually. Um, uh, the one with kind of Bertie Bassett kind of thing. Yeah, uh, Shangri La Towers or something was it? Something like that. There, well, you got. The- the one with Betty Bassett was called The Happiness Patrol, but there was indeed a story called Paradise Towers as well. Paradise Towers, that's right. Um, and uh, so I remember that. I mean, uh, obviously this is kind of like moving quite late into the 80s now. Um, and uh, it, I mean, I was aware of the fact that it was all looking a bit ropey, but I mean, I still quite enjoyed it. And, you know, my kind of, my geek kind of, uh, kind of genes were kind of developing at this point. So I was kind of fascinated by anything kind of, Weird. I think Bonnie Lanford finished me off completely. I mean, that was that, that sounds really wrong, by the way. Uh, in terms of... <laughs> <laughs> the 
revelations. No, I know why you're so sticky. Yet another. Yeah, you want to watch that? You want to watch that? If anyone on Project U Tree listens to this, that's tabloids. I'm going to put hashtag Boy Lanford attached to this podcast now. That was the point where I went, oh no, I can't watch this anymore. Which obviously was was only short before it was anyway. So. uh, so yeah, so I remember it very fondly, and I, you know, it was, it was something fun. I used to watch, like at tea time when it was on Saturday. I'm assuming Saturday afternoon, and I just used to be. It just became kind of a stable thing I'd do, you know, watch. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, I've got very fond memories of Doctor Who. Hmm. I came in uh, pretty late, Tom Baker. I, I my earliest memories um, of Doctor Who, not in in my life. My earliest members not watching Doctor Who. That that would be tragic. Uh, my earliest members of Doctor Who are from Tom Baker's last season, but I I believe I must have been watching it before then. Um, the earliest memory of Doctor Who I have is one of the companions being menaced in the cave by some spiders which hatch out of some stones. Um, so that was suitably vivid. Um, yeah, and, and Tom, uh, the thing is, I had an older brother, and he was a five and a half year older brother. So he was the perfect age to get Tom Baker papered right throughout his childhood. Oh. So for him, yeah. the, the bar was set very high. Grudgingly later, he has accepted that Peter Davison was alright, but uh, everyone else was either not as good as Tom Baker or was utterly naff. Uh, he hasn't, has got, he's got very little patience for Colin or Sylvester McCoy. Um, He's quite happy to inflict the new series on, the ch- on his children, though, so um, I fully approve of that because it makes Christmas <laughs> easier. Um, but obviously, having this older brother who, who had, had this very glowing memory of Tom Baker, this is before he really had video, so I very much felt like I, I kind of come in after the party was over, so to speak, and Doctor Who was on continually to fall onto ever-reducing circumstances. It yeah. was no longer a serious particular... I won't get too far into this because we will be hitting this topic later. It was no longer beloved by the BBC as once it was. Uh, and uh, it was increasingly marginalised and for its last three years, the entirety of Seth McCoy's run, it was up against Coronation Street in, in, in um, the scheduling. So you can imagine what that did to it. Um, and my brother fell away, so it was just me watching it. I, had a lot, I quite like Peter Davison. Although when I heard he was leaving, I was so excited I was going to get a new doctor. I couldn't wait for him to go, uh, which, right. is a, which is a shame because we got we got Colin Baker. I didn't mind him so much at the time, but looking back on Colin, his era as an adult, I can see like, oh, there's so many things wrong with it. Uh, the, well, the the jacket, apart from anything else, he's so bombastic and quite unlikable as a as a person. Colin Baker's yeah. fine, by the way, but the the, the sixth doctor is quite abrasive. Um, and uh, Seth McCoy, I do agree with you that, that actually, in many, in many ways, Doctor Who had a really bad quality slump in sort of the mid-80s, and it really fell into the, the doldrums. Uh, but it, it, I honestly feel it pulled itself out of the mire towards the end. It really started to get, kind of start getting interesting scripts in with lots of with ideas packed into them. Um, yeah. Uh, so I think the, the latter half of Sylvester McCoy was certainly of, of a much better quality. It was, it was actually a reasonably good series again by the time it, it floated off uh, forever and you know, left this. You know, when I first read in Doctor Who magazine that they, you know, a series might not be commissioned for, for 1990, it was inconceivable to me at the time. Um, of course, you know, a gulf of years and then eventually you hear the, the tremendously fantastic news that Doctor Who is coming back. I hear who the new Doctor is going to be announced on the radio and then I turn up and watch it and it's the Paul McGann movie and then it goes away and dies again. Yeah. Uh, and so then it's like, ah, oh, another and more wilderness years until we get back to 
to the new series. And the whole time I'm thinking, no, no, it, we turn the corner here. We can do CGI on television these days. Um, we, you know, we brought back Randall Kirk deceased, and I was like, how yes. come this has come back and Doctor Who hasn't? It was a dumbfounding thing that kept occurring to me. But yeah, it was it was a huge thing in my childhood. Obviously, uh, kind of the number one show with Blake Seven being the second one. Um, yeah. So yeah, obviously it's had a profound effect on me. So anyway, um, yes, yeah, so we have another question. Yeah. Hmm. We now move into the quiz proper, which is called Who or What? I'm going to read out uh, four statements. Uh, three of them are true to the Doctor Who series. These are the Who's. One, however, is not official canon. It is total fan fiction. This is the What. You must sort the Who's from the What. Uh, we'll start with the ever-popular Daleks. I should read out four Dalek factoids. You must identify the one that is a total lie. Okay. Okay. Dalek fact one. Daleks shared their homeworld with another native race, the Thals. They warred for a thousand years. Uh, whereas the Daleks devolved into blobs, the Thals became taller, beautiful, rather Aryan, shall we say. The Thals are featured in three Dalek stories and are ultimately always side with the Doctor. Fact number two, the Daleks finally conquered stairs in the new series, where they were seen to be able to float up, up them for the first time, uh, a world-invading uh, innovation only CGI could allow. Fact number three, such is the horrid condition under which the mutant creature inside a Dalek evolved, they are totally dependent on radiation to survive, to the point where anti-radiation medication will drive them to hallucinate and then die. Uh, Dalek fact number four, Daleks are slavishly loyal to authority. Merely questioning an order is unthinkable. Only complete obedience is permitted. A good Dalek knows when an order is given, the correct response is, I obey. Those are your four facts, gentlemen. Three who's, one what. Uh, I actually know this. I actually know this one. I have, I, have, I have a very distinct memory of, of one of those, so I can actually, but I'll let, to, I'll let you ramble for a bit, Leo. Uh... Musing over it. I think the anti-radiation medication thing is the the what. That's what I think. There we go. Ramble over. <laughs> uh, so, fair enough. Uh, I know this is true because I remember the thing that is presumably what is the thing that is the odd one out. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Um, so, um, uh, and it is in fact number two because I remember the Sylvester McCoy episode where the Daleks did in fact climb stairs. I remember being terribly impressed and suddenly went, oh, at least now, you know, now they can conquer their arch nemesis. I can remember it floating up. I'm afraid, um, Leo, I'm going to have to award Justin a point. He has, I must reward him for every sign he's given to have watched and paid attention to a first McCoy story. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll check another question because that one was quite quick. Yes. Okay, worst master plan ever. I'm now going right. to read out four plots hatched by the fiendish renegade Time Lord, the Master. Uh, three appeared in the Doctor Who series. One is a complete work of fiction. Can you determine which is which? Number one. In the year 1215, the Master is trying to rubbish King John's reputation with the use of a robot imposter. So the barons of England will turn on the king and he will be killed or deposed. Thus, Magna Carta never happens, and parliamentary democracy never comes to exist. Chaos will reign, and he, the master, will be its master. <laughs> Toy number two. 
the Master steals a Concorde from 1982 and drags it back in time to where he is trapped 40 million years in, the, in Earth's past, so he can use the crew and passengers as slave labour to break open an alien vault and still the alien life force within to power his defunct TARDIS. Needing more people, he steals a second Concorde, this time with the Doctor on board. Uh, master plot number three. The master has taken over a garden center and having disposed of the original owner is breeding a race of, race of walking killer trees with intents to employ them to take over the world. The plant creatures are, are racks to sound waves from a device the master has perfected as well as killing people with swinging their mighty branches and strangling veins. Trees also emit a fatal gas um, to, uh, that's fatal to all animal forms. That's the third plot. The fourth plot, the master has accidentally shrunk himself to six inches high whilst tinkering with his favorite weapon. As a result, um, as a result, he describes as a small design flaw. He wants to unleash a volcano on the planet San, so its healing gases will restore him to his correct size whilst incidentally wiping out the local population. So, is it King John's robot, King John Imposter, Master stealing concords, Master unleashing killer plants upon the world, or the Master shrinking himself and then and then opening up a volcano? Wow. Um, I think... <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a trick question. They are, in fact, all made up. No, that's not true. One of them, one of them is made up. The other three are sadly real and actually happened in a story. And I am burning with shame. I can't, I, I can't quite believe, honey, I shrunk the, the Time Lord. <laughs> that, that sounds utterly ludicrous, but that means it's probably right. <laughs> I don't think BBC would have had the budget for the Concords. I'm not saying they obviously actually stole a Concord. That sounds like an obvious 80s reference you've thrown in there. I'm, I'm, I, I think you purposely pick the most ludicrous story you can find, this shrinking master, and put that into basically throw us off the scent. So I'm gonna go for what seems like a plausible one, but I think it, I don't I don't ever remember seeing a Concord on on and I was watching in the eighties. So I'm I'm gonna go for well, the Concord is the stinker there, that's the what. I'm gonna I'm gonna, gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take, take a, a slightly one. different approach on this one. I think that uh, the Concorde, I mean, they, they only had to simulate a Concorde. They had to simulate, like, the inside of a Concorde, maybe have some stock footage of Concords, which they had to be about in the 80s, and then kind of make a sort of sort of set with a bit of broken Concorde on it that would double for the weather, you know. So I, I think that one's possibly true. Um, I also think that the trees in the garden centre are true. I also think that the, the shrinky... Time Lord is is a red herring that is actually real when it seems yeah. fake. I think that explaining to children about the Magna Carta, it doesn't really have the dramatic. I think that would get quashed at a story meeting. It's a it's a fine idea for a, a, a sort of a political machinations story, but this is a children's show and yeah. you know, trying to explain to the children what the Magna Carta is and why they should care. That seems like a bit of a Herculean task for tea time television. So I'm going for the robot King John. Okay. Okay, you both happy with your answers? Yeah, well. well uh, <laughs> okay, I have, I have one quick question for Justin. Um, yes. When have you ever known Doctor Who to shy away from a budget staggering idea? <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid oh, yeah. 
the uh, tale uh, of the master stealing concords is entirely true. It is wow, also yeah. true. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry to say, the master did indeed shrink himself to six inches high yeah, whilst that, tinkling that. with his throat. That is that's that's the ludicrous spot I've ever heard from Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, I regret to say the master taking over a garden centre is a complete fabrication on my part. Wow. Uh, um, <laughs> so I award you for this. No Because I, I actually would like to see that Magna Carter episode. That sounds good. <laughs> you say that, that now. Cool. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, it's called The King's Demons. It's only two episodes long, so... Uh, yes, okay. the master did um, indeed try okay. to use a shape, nonetheless a shape-changing. Well, basically, to... what you did there again was you tapped into our uh, belief. We thought you're obviously they're going to do something with a garden centre and talking trees because that's going to cost about five pounds and you know look ridiculous and obviously I think, be perfect. I think what fooled me on that one was the at first I thought, well, that sounds obviously false, and then it was when they went through the laundry list of things that the trees could do, and I was like. Well, yeah, that now sounds like, you know... Yeah. yeah. Okay, you got us. <laughs> well, I'm evil. I'm sorry. I'll try, be, <laughs> I'll try and be kinder next time. Should we have another discuss, discussion topic, gentlemen? Or do yeah. Uh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's talk about... Okay, everyone knows someone out there. You, you know me, for instance, who is the, the, the Who fan. Um, yeah. And occasionally you meet another Who fan and you put them in the room together... And just watch them go, like, you know, putting two plasma balls together and watching the sparks go, and you kind of sit back and go, my God, it, 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 it's like a level of nerdom I never appreciated. Um, just what is it about Doctor Who that makes grown men so unreasonably obsessed with what is essentially a children's <laughs> adventure series? Go. Wow. Uh... Wow. <laughs> you don't know. Never nil. I mean, I... I brings out that in people, doesn't it? Sci-fi, anyway, generally brings out the more obsessive fans, I would say. I think, I think, I mean, it's one of the things I'm starting to notice doing this show, okay, and it, because then you, you do the show, you're walking around the world, you're thinking, oh, I wonder if we could talk about that on the show. So you start to look at, you know, popular culture, I've started to sort of comb through sci-fi news and things like that, is that Doctor Who and Star Trek for example, fit into this camp of very vocal fan bases who, you know, it has to be like this. It has to be cerebral. We want to see sort of cerebral stories brought to the, the, the small screen. We want to sit in our little glowing cocoon of, and see the sort of, uh, see people challenge our intellectual preconceptions of what, you know, the world can be using through the medium of science fiction. And that's, that's what happens. And then you get stuff like Stargate, where Stargate fans shut the hell up and yeah. don't really talk because it's, and then they're looked down upon by the others because they're like, shouldn't you ask for more challenge? It's like, no, we want it to be dramatic and exciting and, you know, we want a good adventure romp story. Um, and yeah, although Stargate has obviously people who are Star Trek fans writing for it, so occasionally they do have one of these episodes where it's a bit weird and they do something a bit odd. The fan base of those shows doesn't seem to get all aerated about it and will demand more. They just go, oh, that was a good episode. Let's see what, whether they're fighting some aliens next week. And that's what they do. So, yeah, I think there's a thing where there's, it's because noisy fans rather than 
any more fans. If, if you know, if I think, I don't know what it is, but somehow it seems when people are happy with things, they don't feel the need to converse about them at length. Yeah. Uh, there's also there's also the thing that um, because you have eras of doctors, then obviously that's you're already you know you're already going to have your doctor. I mean that's kind of established kind of thing and that was you know you at the right time growing up and you have an affection for, it. and so that, that's already creating a division between you know kind of fans because is Tom Baker better than you know Colin Baker? Well, probably, but then you might well have someone who loves that. So um, you're already, even if you love the show, you're going to get kind of people who are going to be, you know, um, ready to kind of fight to the death to defend their particular doctor. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that always helps. I mean, you know, because uh, the Star Trek fans do the same thing between yeah. Star Trek and... It's like that and running Space on Nine. I think it's Not so much as Voyager, although Voyager as well has its fans. Yeah. So all the different iterations of Trek have their thing. But even back in the 1960s Star Trek, where Star Trek kind of kicked it off, didn't it? It was was the first science fiction show where they had all these people, you know, swarm in to, 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 you know, um, support it. Um, So yeah, I mean, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of... I mean, I don't know. I I view fan bases which are seen as particularly... Because, I mean, Firefly has become the latest... um, and Farscape had its brief moment when they they cancelled it without a proper ending, and for a moment the Farscape fan base rose up like yeah. a tide. Well, but, yeah, this, if, yeah. If you want to create, then, yeah. you know, if you want to create that, then cancel a long yeah. running show that yeah. people love. <laughs> but no, but the thing is, when they got when Farscape fans got the Peacekeeper War, suddenly they became very quiet again. Yeah. And Firefly fans, on the other hand, Browncoats, are, are never going to give up because. That's- they feel it doesn't matter how many times they made a movie um, or how many comic books they make or whatever. They feel that the show didn't get the chance that it deserved. And I think a key component of very visible vocal fan bases is that they're at some level dissatisfied with what they've been given. Yeah. Ian, would you agree with this as a sitting on the inside? Uh, Doctor Who fans are pretty well known for how... Um... <clears throat> passionate they are for this series i i used to post quite a lot on the fan forums i've kind of stopped for quite a number of years i'm just basically a lurker um because there is there is so much kind of bitterness and frustration going on 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 doctor fan forums sometimes and i'm quite like these days we've got tumblr and things like that where people just put up lovely gifs you know, uh, animated GIFs of things and stuff like that, and everyone can just squee, as they say, over Doctor Who once more, and how lovely it is, as opposed to bellyaching about how, you know, uh, Moffat's lost direction on this, and, you know, other agonising about that, and how terribly the BBC are treating the series at this particular moment in time. And You know, to, to believe the fans, you'd think Stephen Moffat actually didn't read the, you know, the spec scripts he got in from his from his authors he hires to write the stories he's not writing. You, you would honestly right. believe that. So it's, it's like, it's almost, these people are slightly in the hinge and don't live in reality. I mean, I'm sure, the, whenever there's a, a vote about what's this episode good, it is almost universally, uh, the majority of people praise it quite highly. It's only ever a very mo- vocal minority that's always saying, no, 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 this is the worst thing ever. It's like a, like a three or five percent down at the bottom of the pie chart. Uh, yeah. but this three or five percent really does dominate. And I'm a little bit aware also that 
some doctor some doctor fans are just people at the end of the day you have one obsession you know, I could have been obsessed with uh you know uh rally cars and who would have yep. who or football who would have noticed if I was a huge tottenham fan who would care uh, but it's Doctor Who rather than Shakespeare, so it's, 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 it doesn't have the sort of cool chic that other obsessions might have. Um, and I'm aware that there are some corners of fandom which have, for want of a better word, misanthropes, um, who I, I honestly feel very bad for some of these actors because they have to deal with these people sometimes when they meet them. And they are not yeah. quite humans of this earth. Uh, and I'm, I'm kind of, a, I'm, I'm, I kind of consider myself um, a, a misanthrope who became self-aware somehow, and is now terribly guarded about how he acts and performs around people. Um, because they just like the, 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 so there is that nasty side to fandom. I mean, why is it so beloved? I'm not entirely sure. The series just kind of really got me um, at a very particular time, and I, there's nothing else like it out there. And it's kind of mine. Um, so I'm very proprietorial about the series, I suppose. But yeah, um, I mean, generally speaking, why do you think the series is popular with people in, in the public? What are the qualities of the series that just make it stand out as... Um, if I were to have a one-word review of Doctor Who, it would just kind of be, it's brilliant. Uh, what's Doctor Who like? It's brilliant. You've got to watch it. Um, so I'm just kind of feeling, what, what do you think... From you, because you have, I have my perspective. I'm wondering what the outside perspective of normal people who watch normal television is. That uh, <laughs> of what I think you might be. I think you might be barking up the wrong tree, asking me and Justin. Then I to me, know. you're normal, okay? Okay. <laughs> normal with respect to Doctor Who. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it is unique. I mean, this is the thing. Yeah. It's like I don't rush out to buy Doctor Who uh, box sets. I got my Supernatural season eight box set. In the uh, in the mail this morning, and I was like, "Oh wow, Supernatural season eight. Um, but I haven't gone and got any Doctor Who ones. I mean, I got the whole Eureka as well because um, I love that. Um, but I always watch Doctor Who, and we always record it, and we always make sure every episode of Doctor Who is an essential watch, even yeah. if you don't choose to go back and watch it again afterwards. Because you know, I think there is a thing of, especially now. Um, but they've, you know, they don't really do serials and occasion only occasionally do the two parters. Um, that you because you don't know exactly what you're going to get, you don't want to miss the one that everybody was like, wow, that was really good. You know, there are there are people, you know, who still wail and gnash their teeth that they missed the first run of the Weeping Angels, um, because everybody agrees that was stellar. And, and, you know, they saw it later, of course, but that, that's not good enough. They had to see it at the time. And it's, it's event television, um, which I don't think, I mean, that's the thing. Americans have done really well at television recently, but event television, I think Doctor Who pretty much stands alone at the moment in terms of something that people, I mean, I tend to let things accumulate on my TiVo and then yeah. watch huge loves them, not Doctor Who. Every episode, you watch the episode as yeah. soon as possible after air. Yeah, that's right. I agree with you. Um, I I think that um, the format of the show is just un- is just there isn't really anything like it. You, you like you say as you kind of pointed out. I mean, you can just get it, you could just have anything, you know. And it's that variety I think that I enjoy. And, you know, it's done, then it's moved on, so you can explore kind of really kind of crazy stuff. 
but it's not like you're going to get the same thing over and over. You know, most American shows, they set up the format, and, you know, if you go you go with it, then, yeah, you just kind of watch one after the other, and you get a bit of variety. But Doctor Who, you have no idea what's coming, and you might have absolutely, like, genius kind of things, you know, occasionally they have been. So it's... it's I um, I um, I mean, I think it's just I love it because it's British, and I don't know whether I know there is a big America. There obviously are more fans now in America, but I mean, I've I've had conversations with a very kind of geeky friend of mine from the states who just doesn't get it, doesn't really, they just don't. They're so used to kind of Star Trek and all these kind of things that they don't they don't really and get it. It's not their thing, and I like the fact that it's that it's ours. Yeah, yeah Doctor Who has a, has an aspect about it which is like strong cheese or yeah. something where yeah. it's like, and I'm not talking about an acquired taste either. Is I don't, I think that it's like you either like it or you don't like it. And if you look at a lot of other, like we've produced more sci-fi now, um, and I think that if you look at something like Misfits um, by contrast. Uh, Misfits has that kind of oh well it's got to have a comedy aspect yeah and and what's really surprising about it is that the comedy aspect sometimes takes a backseat to the real epic adventure and it's even more surprising when you consider that they managed to get that spirit of epic superhero adventure with kids in boiler suits running around like a housing estate somewhere in East London or whatever it is you know that's just crazy that they, they managed to do that but there's nothing it's not Doctor Who I mean you get the same sort of thing every week um, and uh, I mean I I got the impression towards the end although I've never watched a single episode of this that being human was very much an American show that just happened to be British it was like you know it started to get into this thing where there was a plot arc and you know the characters and you did it and I was like okay so you've basically made like an American television series but it happens to be made in the UK and that's the thing Doctor Who could never be accused of that and it's, it is always unique and it's a different thing and it's the only thing like it on the television and uh, the, the Sue wants to talk as well, and she's even more normal than both me and Justin. Yeah, so, if you want a female perspective, yeah, yeah, yeah. who's slightly more normal than oh, you? Your perspective, Sue. So, <laughs> um, it's it's a bit odd, really, because I was a Sylvester McCoy doctor. I kind of, you know what I mean? I was that was what I grew up with. Um, remember him hiding behind things quite a lot, and kind of thinking, I'm not really bothered about this. Yeah. I I grew up kind of going, eh, Doctor Who, eh, um, whatever, you know. Um, so when they brought it back, I was a bit like, oh well, whatever. Now I wouldn't miss it for the world. Yeah. It's it's an event TV. It's if anybody said to me, what is Doctor Who? Unique is a good word, but it's also eventful. It's an event. You have to watch the event of Doctor Who. Mm. It's so individual. It's so eventful as i said i i have to watch it now um i really liked david tennant's doctor but not just because i fancied david tennant and liked all the romantic plot lines i liked what david tennant brought to the doctor compared to you know what i had with sylvester mccoy and it made me look back at other doctors and made me more interested in other things about doctor who um which means that you know that upsets Doctor proper Doctor Who fans, but at the same time, you know, it's kind of like, well, isn't that what you want? Isn't that what people want? Is 
you know, that those generations that kind of missed out on Doctor Who. And I've worked in an environment where I've seen kids who are young coming in buying Doctor Who stuff now who are really obsessed with the older series and things like that because they've been brought up to date with it by the event that is Doctor Who. They they love the whole spectacle of it. It's a spectacle. It's become this, you know, you don't just get Doctor Who, the TV series. You get the the opera of Doctor Who now. You get the, you know, the one-off Christmas specials. And you get this, that, and the other. And they look forward to it. And they look forward to looking back over the other things. So, yeah, it's it's become something that's cherished now here. Yeah. What, is, what is unique about Doctor Who is that unlike... Unlike every other thing that exists in science fiction universe, in television and film, Doctor Who embraces its expanded universe. Uh, BBC put out four Doctor Who video games with Matt Smith in them, and um, there's there are cartoons and there are things. But unlike everything else, where the 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 television show, yeah, the television show goes, oh, all that other stuff, that's just. If it didn't happen in television show, it's not canon. Doctor Who goes, well, why couldn't it be canon? There it is, it happened. So you feel like it doesn't matter what medium you're interacting with Doctor Who through, it is part of Doctor Who, which is crazy. I mean, it, it spills out of the television into, you know, novels and stuff and, and radio plays and cartoons and computer games, and it's all canon. Everything happened, which doesn't happen anywhere else. That's because um, Doctor Who's quite anti-establishment and a bit of an anarchist himself, perhaps. So it kind of infects the format of the show almost. It's almost. Yeah. I think there's a. I think there's a key point as well that actually uh, Doctor Who, like we had, another, we we've had other characters that have that kind of iconic status, e.g., that we've created in Britain, like Max Headroom. But Max Headroom is for grown-ups. And what's really, really anti-stabs about Doctor Who is that technically, technically, he's for kids. Yeah. Mm. But he's, is, but is he? But is he not? But yes. I did his well. There's no There we go. Doctor Who that, was, that's, that's yeah. Answer. Doctor Who was never made by the uh, children's department at BBC. It's, it's always, it was always made by the BBC drama department back in the day. But yeah, it is, it is squarely aimed at children and yet it's, you know, is it the serious uh, adults are permitted to watch with their children? It's, you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah. It's the guilty little secret. A little slice of childhood that's still ongoing. It's not quite yep. over yet. Another thing that isn't quite over yet is the ordeal of your quiz. Way! Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I'm gonna have a good bash through a few questions here, so hang on to your hats. Great. Okay, we're going to talk about the TARDIS. I'm going to name four TARDIS rooms. Three are who and one is what. Um, okay, well, not rooms, functions on components of TARDIS. Okay, uh, uh, this one is easy. You should get this one with no difficulty. Uh, the chameleon circuit is the faulty device that allows the TARDIS to change its shape. It jammed in 1963 in the shape of a police box. The Doctor has attempted to fix it twice. The first time it backfired and shrank the TARDIS. The second occasion it uh, did start working again but kept turning into even more conspicuous shapes than it already was such as a flowery cupboard and drawers, a church organ, giant iron steel gates before eventually turning back into a police box and jamming again. Two, the memory room. Uh, is a museum in the TARDIS uh, which is a kind of a vault 
where clothes of past inclinations, inclinations are stored, and behind memory glass, various monsters from the Doctor past can be seen lurking as if in a Zooey exhibition. Uh, weapons, tools, even old consoles are stored here, along with information on the exhibits. The memory room is vaguely explained. It's some part of the Doctor's symbiotic link with the TARDIS. It acts as a backup to the Doctor's memory, useful for the Doctor needs to recenter himself following a traumatic regeneration, where his identity might be slipping. The third is the uh, cloister bell. The cloister bell tolls when the universe itself faces imminent catastrophe. Its forlorn chimes can be heard throughout the TARDIS, and it still features in the modern series. When the cloister bell chimes, something big and very serious is about to happen. And fourth is the secondary control room. A much smaller control room with wooden panelling and a console much smaller resembling a six-sided bureau with no central glass column. It even has one bureau where letters can be written in pen and ink. It also has a shaving mirror. The doctor used this room for a whole year before switching back to his familiar white one without explanation. So is it the chameleon circuit, the memory room, the cloister bell or the secondary control room, which is the what? Well, you think this is easy, but I'm, I'm finding this hard. I know, I, I know I can make a stab at two of those that I think are true. So I'm, I'm struggling here a bit. Well, uh, unless Leo well, has... One of them is a what, so... Uh, I, I you, can, no, you, you can confer and you can split your point and split okay. your answers, remember. You, you, so oh. you, can, you can conspire together to wangle some points if, if necessary. Do I do that? I mean, I, 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 well, yeah, I mean, obviously the comedian circuit is correct. I mean, obviously. So... Um, and I think I've seen I think I've seen the memory room in, in one of the shows, but the other ones the cloister bill sounds right, but I both of those, the other two sound plausible. So why I don't does, why does the I think the bell sounds wrong to me? Uh not a wrong thing to say. Um oh, oh. <laughs> There's uh, something off about its mould and shape. It's sour. I, believe that I think out of those it's probably the least likely because I can believe it probably would have a secondary console so um, my my thoughts are are probably towards the cloister bell out of those I, but, I'm, but I'm not sure I'm going to go with Quell well. well, I would go with the chameleon TARDIS shape no, what? That's, that's actually so, true. Go away with your internet. Go away. Bloody... Oh, Facebook. You're going with the chameleon circuit, are I you? I told you that because I told you I don't think it settled on um, a TARDIS shape, that shape, until the 1980s. Okay, well. Right, right. like... oh, what you're saying is there's a trick okay. question. No, I, I think it's the bell. I'm going for the bell. Bell? I'm going for the bell because I, I, I think I've seen a secondary thing in something, so I'm, I'm going to... Uh, yeah, that's that's my that's my guess as well. Uh, the chameleon circuit does indeed exist. The TARDIS has resembled a police box since its first story where it jammed, although at the time it was known as the camouflage circuitry. Yeah. It is now known as the chameleon circuit. Uh, the uh, the secondary console room is entirely correct. They're experimenting with a new console room, which is a wooden one, much more of a Jules Verne one in a Tom Baker series. But the wooden console room warped in storage, so they thought, oh, bugger it, let's go back to the old one. Um, the cloister bell is also real and has been heard to all oh, within the new series. The memory room is a complete fabrication. I am, in fact, describing uh, the Doctor Who exhibition. 
Um, oh, his uh, past incarnation clothes are stored behind memory glass. Various monster doctors past lurk behind dioramas like a zoo, displays weapons, tools, even old console rooms. It's Doctor Who exhibition. Uh, okay. Yes, I was being cheeky. Let's do another one. Let's not. Un- if neither of you get any, yeah. get this one right. I will let you do it. I have, have another go. So I've got like, one point so far. So come on, let's go. More, round through. Dead ring. Sorry, Liam. Oh, stop invoking Wikipedia. Sit down. It's a bit of fun. <laughs> wife is getting too involved in this. Competitiveness yeah, is coming this, out. This is not even fun, guys. Are we all having fun? I'm having fun. I'm having fun. having fun. You're having fun. It's the audience, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's oh, nice. when does that stop us? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just pleased to have an audience. Okay. Uh, next question. Dead ringers, as you travel through time, you inevitably meet, meet someone who just happens to look exactly like you. Um, here are four, uh, four occasions where someone has resembled a doctor. Uh, one of them, however, is a lie. Okay, so number one. In Paris in 1572, the Catholic abbot of Ambrose in Paris was a dead ringer for the first doctor. He was part of a plot to oppress the Huguenot Christian minority and never met the first doctor. In the far future, in the far future of 2018, the Mexican-born Ramon Salamander was a dead ringer for the second Doctor. He attempted to use a natural disaster-producing machine to become Earth's world leader. He only met the second Doctor once. Rasputin was a dead ringer for the fourth Doctor. He was murdered right at the start of the story due to his influence over the Queen. Not easy to kill either, as you can imagine. Uh, his conspirators surprise when the Doctor turns up. The Doctor is forced to impersonate the Mad Monk until he can find his TARDIS, extract his companions, and make good his escape. And fourth, Commander Maxwell of the Chancery Guard of Gallifrey was a dead ringer for the sixth Doctor. The sixth Doctor didn't meet him. Uh, the fifth Doctor did, though. Wordlessly, Maxwell shot him with a stun gun when they met. So, was it a Catholic abbot in Paris in 1572 resembling the first doctor? Was it Ramon Salamander resembling the second doctor? Did Rasputin resemble the fourth doctor? Did Commander Maxwell resemble, uh, of the Chancery Guard resemble the sixth doctor? Uh, one of those is a lie. Oh my god. Yeah. Well, let me just get out of <laughs> I have absolutely no idea. No, I'm saying let me get a D4 and roll randomly. Oh, sure. Well, let, let's, let's see if your dice is better at this game than you are. Okay, Leo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably very likely. <laughs> um, my, my, before I do that, I, I, well, I, I have no idea, although I really like the idea of Rasputin being like Tom Baker. I, 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 that would be fun. I'd like to see that episode, but you might have well just chosen that so spot on. In terms of the thematically for the for the seventies, that just might be, you'd be very clever. I have no idea at all. While Leo muse over that, I'm going to go and generate a number. Uh, right. Well, my approach to this is going to be uh, just as wrong as it has been before, but at least logical. In that, the first three all sound like things that would like, like the problem I have with the last one is that. That that doesn't sound like if one of the doctors met another of the doctors, why would they can't like say, Ah, but you're not the doctor, you're someone else? Because like having the opportunity to have two doctors on set at the same time, uh, would surely lead to a two doctors plot line. Not oh it, he just happens to look I mean that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense in your head as a you know, I'm going meta 
but why would you have those two actors and go, but one of you isn't playing the character for whom you are known, which would create the maximum amount of fan I, I hysteria. Would, I would remind you, it was um, a fifth Doctor story. Right. Yes. Oh, but how, well, in which case, the fifth Doctor, who is... Um, Fifth Doctor is, is Peter meeting Colin Baker because he was the sixth Doctor. Yes, that the guy resembled. Um, yeah, I, don't, I really don't. Oh, unless of course what you're cunningly doing is saying that Colin Baker was in a Peter Davison episode. It wasn't remarked upon that he resembled the sixth Doctor. He just happened to be in the episode and then later became the Doctor. And that's what happened, which now completely throws out. Well, in that case, I think I'm going to go for Rasputin because that sounds too good to be true. Hmm. Now, now that Leo's actually jogged my memory there, because I remember Colin Baker was in a, in a, in a, uh, another role, and I think that's what you're referring to. Because the dice says four, but I'm actually I'm going to override it because I think I've got a memory of that. I might have seen a making of thing with him being in another. Uh, um, earlier episode, in which case, uh, switching to a D3. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, I, 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 I'm inclined to agree with Leo because that would be awesome, but I just, I want it to exist so much and then uh, to hunt it down, Rasputin with Tom Baker. I'm going to go for um, the second one. In the far future, a, Mex- a Mexican-born Ramon Salamander yeah. is a dead ringer for second officer. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the made-up one. Yes, I just want to point out before you reveal the right answer, the reason I'm sticking with Ramon Salamander is because you keep going, Ramon Salamander. <laughs> yeah, come on, guys, that has to be false. Who would make up? I'm like, that has to be true then, Ramon Salamander. Come on. Okay. <laughs> uh, so your answer was, your answer, Justin, was... Justin was two. Uh, two. The second one, Ramon Salamander. Uh, Justin, uh, I'm sorry to say that you clearly did, uh, not, did not read the news. Uh, the enemy of the world is one of the recently discovered Pactic Trout stories uh, in which uh, he is, does encounter his doppelganger in the form of Ramon Salamander. Wow. Uh, the okay. first Doctor uh, did indeed not, so to speak, meet his double in uh, the, ab- the Catholic Abbot of Paris uh, in a 60s story and yes, uh, Peter Davison was shot down by his successor, who then subsequently later on go- went on to assume the mantle of the Doctor. Yeah. I have good news and bad news about Rasputin. There is no Doctor Who story where the Doctor meets Rasputin. Oh. A, a Rasputin. However, the cunning double bluff was that Tom Baker did play Rasputin in a movie. Oh, of course. Oh. That, you see, that's what I... Right, yeah, okay, that makes sense. No, I see that, Bill. You are evil. Yeah, but that's fine. No, but that's fine. That's all very well. Tom Baker plays Doctor Who. That's fine. Doctor Who plays Rasputin. Oh, uh, Tom Baker plays Rasputin. That's fine. Doctor Who <laughs> tangles with Rasputin, who looks exactly like himself. That's the story we want to see. Yeah, we do. <laughs> well, Doctor Who's evil, mad Russian magical twin. Well, <laughs> fingers crossed for Peter Capaldi. That's all I can say. Okay. Yeah. One last question for this round. <clears throat> this is entitled, Not the Master. The Doctor has tussled with other renegade Time Lords other than the Master. I shall now read off a list of them. Three of them have featured in the series as villains the Doctor has defeated. One is an entire fabrication on my part. You're not, well, <laughs> we'll see how we go, shall we? 
Form so far does not inspire confidence, but I shall start throwing out hits now. Um, number one, the Hand of Death. Death was an ancient Time Lord who wanted to wipe out the corruption of life from the universe, leaving a perfect set of stars and planets acting peacefully in the laws of nature. He has been destroyed long ago, but wouldn't you know it, a meteorite containing his fossilized, ha- fossilized hand impacted down on Earth somewhere near the home counties. This won't end well for some. Two, the meddling monk, champion of the underdog. The monk wants to jazz up history a bit. For example, he thought King Harold would make a far better king than William the Conqueror. So he hatched a plot to wipe out the Viking invaders which sapped Harold's forces prior to Hastings by blowing them all up with a nuclear-tipped bazooka. Three, the Rani. Went to school with a doctor, apparently, along with a master. She is without ethics or morals, a biochemist who sees all living beings as walking bags of chemicals ripe for her experiments. And four, Omega, the Time Lord who discovered the power source for TARDISes by uh, harnessing a black hole. Lucky for him, he fell into it and became trapped the point, near the point of singularity. After long centuries, he became consumed with the need for vengeance and to escape his prison and assume his rightful place as God all-time lords slash destroyer of all-time lords, depending on his mood. Um, somehow he managed to avoid looking in, mirror, in the mirror for the thousand years he was trapped, and so he didn't notice that his body had completely dissolved, leaving only his uh, bronze protected suit of armour moving around and talking emptily. Um, so, is it Omega, the empty suit of armour, a biochemist, the Rani, uh, the nuclear bazooka-wielding meddling monk, or the hand of death itself? Not a freaking clue. Have you? Uh, now I know I can totally rule out two of those. Okay, personally. go go go. Uh, these are true because I've seen the episodes. So I de- definitely was Rani and the meddling monk. I have seen that one. So I, I, uh, the Omega sounds the most plausible for a Doctor Who plot, but you may well have just tapped into that kind of you know vein to try and trick us. So I'm, uh, I'm undecided. I'm, I'm decided about these hand of death or Omega. I've got to think about that. Uh, well, my approach to this is that the the more plausible of the two is the idea that a meteorite with a hand in it is the central crux of a Doctor Who plot. It's just like, yeah, that seems we can do that. You know, we can make a hand, we can make a meteorite, we can make a crater. These things are not expensive. Whereas having someone walk around in a suit of armour, Brad, that would just look ridiculous. Of course, looking ridiculous is what old school Doctor Who was all about. So therefore, I would take the plausible sounding one, the one that sounds like, yeah, that we could even do that. It would look stylish. And I'm going to say, I'm going to say that death is not correct. Um, I, um, yeah. Mm. Well, I, I think that I think that uh, you have. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm going to say, I'm going to say that you, you, your knowledge of Doctor Who, you created this. Very kind of, I think, I think you, the Omega thing you've made up to, but it sounds really plausible, but I think you're tricking us. So I'm going to say that's the, that's, that's the wrong one. Okay. Uh, of course, the meddling monk, uh, played by Peter Butterworth of Carry On fame is a real character. He was a yeah. William Hartnell's foil, so to speak, long before the master uh, was. Later advised. on, later on, he was played by Graham Garden, wasn't he, in radio plays? He was. Well done. I would give a bonus point, but that's just rubbing into Justin at this stage. Um, <laughs> the Rani was real and played by the uh, 
Glorious, I've forgotten her name, it was on the tip of my head. Rulenska, wasn't it? No, not Rulenska, very similar to Rulenska. God uh, damn it, I even had it written down in my uh, uh, Kate, uh, Kate, Kate Amara, well Kate done. Amara, Kate, Kate Amara, Amara. It's Kate Amara, yes. Kate Amara is the Rani of Terribly Vampy in Camp, um, which only leaves the, the dead Time Lord uh, Death or Omega. Yeah. And I'm sorry to report that in the 10th anniversary story, the principal villain was the uh, undying Time Lord Omega. Where the uh, first, the first three doctors came together to uh, battle his uh, formidable powers. The hand of death is a complete fabrication. Although there was a story where there was an evil hand in Doctor Who, I will disclose that. But uh, I'm sorry to say that the point, once again, goes to Leo. And maybe I don't want to feel too disheartened with this. I, I, I lost I, a lot at the beginning. So <laughs> I just turned it around. Compa- compared to some, you'll leap some leaps and bounds ahead. But anyway. Um, so perhaps we should take a break from this quiz, which is just clearly destroying Justin's <laughs> willingness to indulge us with this podcast and press on with another topic. Perhaps we should talk about someone else's misfortune. Perhaps the Doctor's himself. Uh, gentlemen, Doctor Who is the greatest series ever device, so why on earth did it just disappear from our television sets for 16 long years? Well, I, I might start on this because I've got some views on this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think um, there came a point where clearly the people at the BBC had just kind of gave up, I think, and and they were pandering just to uh, the fans, who were obviously pretty stalwart and, and would, were going to doggedly kind of follow it. But it began to lose its way in the 80s, really, and I think uh, maybe Colin Baker probably started that, because I, I, I pretty much I did enjoy the, uh, uh, the previous doctor that. Um, and I think it just lost, you know, the... the, the the, the, the effects were beginning to look pretty ropey. No one was throwing a huge amount of money at it. And, um, you know, even, and I used to, I, you know, I kind of grew up kind of, uh, loving Doctor Who, and I was kind of feeling by the end, oh, I, it feels like it needs to be put down. It was, you know, I mean, I think basically, Bonnie Langford was it for me. That's, it's like, I'm not watching any more of this. This is just ridiculous. So you're saying that Bonnie Langford is the... No, the seeds were sown before then. I mean, that was literally the kind of, like, we've given up completely, you know? Um, this is not, you know, let's just cast whoever who's around as completely inappropriate, a tap-dancing, annoying kind of uh, gingerbread. That, you know, we're, we're, we're just going to... So, so Bonnie Langford, then. But it was the absolute like we can we don't care anymore about this. But but that it had be, it had been kind of happening late eighties um, anyway, and until the, and then it just like it became a laughing stock, um, and 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 really no one knew was interested. No new fans were interested, in that, and then that's it really. I mean, it kind of I think it deserved a bit of its fate. I mean, it would have been nice to come back sooner, but it but it did deserve a bit of that by the end. It was it was not loved. I think there's a, a thing. Like first of all. I think there is one thing that, that um, you, you know, looking at it from a Time Lord's point of view, um, I've already done a little bit of historical tabulation here, and it seems that the 1990s were possibly the worst decade that has ever been. People <laughs> think it was maybe the 80s or the 70s, but it wasn't. The, the 90s was bereft, devoid. Nothing good came until right at the end of the 90s. Like, the 90s is just full of rubbish. Anything good that happened in the 90s was a complete anomaly. Uh, everything else stood out, didn't it, really? I mean, that was the, just, the, the so only thing to. 
yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're there for, I mean, no, I mean, just generally, I mean, if you look at it, look back at it, actually, I mean, you know, to be fair, in arenas, the Doctor Who doesn't have much with, like, much to do with, like, uh, rock music had some quite good times, I think that, uh, you know, electronica hit its peak, so in the land of music, things were not so bad. Um, although there were some terrible things in the it, 1990s. It was also the year of the, the Spice Girls. So yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. no. Well, they came at the end of the 90s when they music took a real, yeah, yeah. Well, they, 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 they presaged the great disaster that followed the year 2000. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so musically things were happening. Um, and of course, I mean, the 90s was when Terry Pratchett really came into his own in the book arena. So, but if you look at television and film, television and film were very much the wilderness years. You know, 90s were the wilderness years of, of, of those two media. Um, and therefore Doctor Who probably was best out of the building during that decade, really. Yeah, um, I mean, you had, um, and you had Red Dwarf, which was kind of firing on all cylinders, really through yeah. that period. So I think basically people just who wanted that sci-fi thing, it was something that was much fresher, kind of snappier, you know, and it and it was just, you know. If you knew what else was on TV around that time, it was all stuff like the word and things like that. So people just wanted people being gross and swearing. Yeah, so I, yeah, I mean yeah. that's my one yeah. part. I mean the other thing is that I think that yes, definitely what 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 Doctor Who taught itself, which is why I think it's it's part of its power now is that when it started, it was kind of a children's adventure serial, very science fiction. And they took the time travel thing. I mean, you know, <clears throat> I knew when I was a kid that Doctor Who was technically about time travel. But actually, by the 80s, they'd kind of, I mean, Sylvester McCoy, particularly, he was just going to weird places. There was no sense of we are here in this place at this time in history or whatever it is, that, that, that time travel was not, you know, they'd lost their way with that. And the reason for that, I think, is because you had your time travel adventure serial, and then towards the John Pertwee era, era they kind of hooked up with the Jerry Anderson and the Department yeah. S and all of that, and it became a bit of an action series. And at that point, I think, what happened was that people who've been watching it since the very beginning started to become the kind of people who could write for it, who could get involved in Doctor Who. And it was the, the people who'd like, was that obsessed that they would push themselves to be involved that brought it down. Because the last thing you want to do with any property is let the number 100% most obsessive fans control it because they will destroy it. Yeah. And and then, you know, what they learned in the intervening 15 years, and I think something that, you know, you need to take a step back. And although uh, Russell T. Davis is a massive Doctor Who fan, I think he was always conscious. And I think he probably did think, I don't want to... I'm sure he had things that he wanted to do. That he went, I'm not doing that because that's what I most want to do. I'm going to do things that are going to make them be good for the show, not good for my own sense of self-satisfaction. Yeah. And then he did farting aliens anyway. But you know. <laughs> what else Russell T. Davis has done with his career? It was a bit of a sidestep career-wise for him to do Doctor Who. So I'm not being disrespectful, but he took both elements of what he was good at. He took the, the fact that he loved Doctor Who, but he also took that kind of, you know what I mean? Edginess. Make it a little bit of a soap opera. Make it a little bit, you know what I mean? Slightly yeah. twist it a bit, make it a little bit, and he did that with it as well, which yeah. was which I think helped. So yeah, but I, I think that it's resurrection came at the hand of it of, of 
more responsible fans. Mm. And I think that's what brought it down, was obsessive fans worming their way into the production towards the end. Again, I was uh, Sylvester McCoy. I was a Sylvester McCoy Doctor Who. And what I, that's all I remember was him running around a lot and hiding behind things. Mm. And this feeling that the Doctor didn't really have much power over anything. And that all he did was wander around, talk to people, and then hide. Hmm. Um, and that's not what you want from a doctor. You want him to be a hero. So when they brought him back, he was this—he he was a hero. He's now a hero again. And I think that's what you want him to be smarter than you. You want him to be, you know what I mean, more capable. You don't want him hiding behind rocks going, I don't know what to do. There's something that I, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to stand here behind the rock for half an hour. That That's not the point of a Doctor Who. But what's really interesting as well is that the new run makes life difficult for the Doctor. And I think towards the end of the run, although the enemies made him run behind things, the, the kind of people who says, oh, well, the Doctor can't, do this and the doctor can't do that and the doctor can't be they were stopped considering the doctor as a character to whom bad things could really happen except yeah. in the sense of oh we're going to run and hide from this laser beam and that's that's not drama that's complication hmm. so there we go that's Ian, my, yes, my particular thoughts then I think the rot set in at the 20th anniversary um, because they had the twin anniversary and they had their celebratory story, The Five Doctors, in which Tom Baker was not a participant and William Hartnell was dead. Um, but regardless, you had the Five Doctors and it was this big kind of crescendo celebration, 20 years, quite an achievement. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously that's, they decided to have that by having a good nostalgic thing, you know, Dalek, Simon, Yeti, woohoo! And I think yeah. after that it kind of, it, the problem, I think, with the later third of Doctor Who is it became derivative of the first two thirds, which were innovative. It says they were always continuing to change and advance Doctor Who and what the story of Doctor Who was and weren't afraid to shake up the whole setup or what the series was about. Um, and then you just have something that's derivative about the, the first 20 years of Doctor Who. Uh, that's kind of my things about it. You start having storylines which were uh, a sequel to a story that was first appeared in the 60s, who on earth is going to even care? Casual viewers won't care. Long-term fans, even they might not have seen the story because not everyone has videos at this stage. So it, it's kind of like weird things like that. And I think also, this is, this, is, this is an odd point, but numbering your doctors, I think the five doctors made us realize that doctors had numbers attached to them. Previously, the guy playing the Doctor was just kind of the Doctor. And then someone else was playing the Doctor. Suddenly we have numbered Doctors. And when Colin Baker came in, he was very much the sixth Doctor. He wasn't allowed to be the Doctor. And I think that is what ultimately buckles him, because he has suddenly to bear the weight of not just his predecessor, but all his predecessors at the same time. So they ultimately try to make him extra quirky, extra eccentric, He's grumpier than the first Doctor. You know, he's abrasive and stuff like that. And perhaps you won't like him. He's going to be a contrast to all of them. He's eccentric as the fourth Doctor. He's, he's not boring like the fifth Doctor. And he's got all these things on him. And ultimately, it's just kind of a, more of a mess. Um, and, you know, it doesn't end well for Colin Baker because he is the only Doctor to be effectively fired from, uh, his, from, from being in the part. Um, I mean, they, they really kind of assumed that this thing was just going to run and run and run forever. They didn't think, we're going to make this series the best one ever because, you know, cancellation. 
Um, I think also the fact that the, special, the, the Doctor Who's budget had not been increased since the 70s, so it was getting smaller all the time in real terms. Uh, and special effects ain't getting any cheaper. I mean, by Special McCoy's last season, the writing staff realised that, oh, gee, goodness me, the BBC costume department has no clue what science fiction is. But if we set something in the 18th century in a manor house, they're there. They can perform. They've got reference books they can look up for costumes. It'll look like a, a, a beautiful historical production. Uh, whereas if you do science fiction, out comes the Baco foil, out comes the, you know, the, yeah. the plasma glow because that looks science fiction-y and you have some particularly atrocious model shots. Um, so I, I think they were aware that Doctor Who could, couldn't do science fiction. We're trying to stay away from it. And Doctor Who can't go into space. Whatever you got. Um, but I, I, think, I think the Nadia was, was Colin, was Colin Baker. No reflection on him because he didn't write it. He just had to be the actor. Uh, but his costume was bad. His character was bad. I mean, when, in his, oh, to, to sort of, lead out in his first story to kind of have like a shock moment to make you think oh maybe I won't like this first like, like this doctor this time maybe this doctor's going to be someone abrasive and I'm not going to like they actually had him uh, you know because the doctor when he first regenerates he's unstable he's not quite yeah. with it yet um, and the way Colin Baker's unstableness personified was in Manic Mania he would, yeah. he would, he would episodes of Mania and, in one, and sometimes he would also have Paranoid Mania as well and in one episode, uh, one episode, yeah, in one uh, moment he has, he becomes paranoid that his companion is a spy sent to spy on him, and tries to strangle right. her. He literally right. pins her to the ground, two thumbs on her windpipe, tries to strangle her, and this is quite a shocking thing to inflict yeah. on your viewers. And there's no way do they attempt to redeem him for this later whatsoever, or reconcile, or feel sorry about it. It just kind of brushed under the carpet of. Oh, he's just being unstable because that's how doctors are when they regenerate. And it's like, was, was no one paying attention when this was made? Did they not realize the doctor had to be likable? You know, yeah. he, he had to be the hero. Um, and this is an inexcusable amount of domestic violence you couldn't get away with on television these days. Yeah. My goodness. <laughs> the companion should have been like, right, I'm off. Bye. After that. But no, she sticks with him. Doctor, you all right? You're a good person. Why are you doing this? Like an abused wife or something. On the subject of the Sixth Doctor and violence... Hmm? Yes, I was just agreeing with you. All right. Yeah. Um, I have a question. For, I have another who or what for you. Ah, right. I'm going to read out four vile acts committed by the Sixth Doctor. Only one of which is he innocent of. Right, okay. <laughs> Bearing in mind strangulation is not of his companion is not included amongst them. No. Okay. Number one, he in a sack. Okay. He threw a butterfly net over a murderous alien chef. Then, <laughs> then smothered him to death with a gauze laced with cyanide. The, do- <laughs> the, do- the doctor quips, you're just desserts. <laughs> the sixth doctor shoots a vile dictator's life support machine with a laser gun, who then quickly withers and expires at a doctor's feet. The doctor quips, always thought he was heartless. Startling and then grappling with two security guards who thought they were disposing of the doctor's dead body into an acid vat. As a result of the melee, both men fall into the vat and dissolve alive. The doctor quips, don't think I'll be joining you. 
the Doctor kills a security chief of a prison of the prison planet Varos, along with three other people, by ordering his companion and allies to drop poisonous vines on them. They die instantly in silent rictus. The Doctor quips, it'll give you a nasty rash. Okay, so we have smothers a chef to death with cyanide, uh, shoots a dictator's life support machine, uh, pushes two security guards into an acid vat, or drops poisonous vines on a security chief. Uh, which one of those is the, is the sixth doctor innocent of? Right. <laughs> wow. That's quite amazing that he did all the rest of it. That's pretty grim. Um, hmm. Silence. Silence. And then the doctor pushed the child into the mincing machine. <laughs> I'm I'm going to uh, step forth here and uh, maybe put my neck on the line here saying that the third one sounds like you just lifted a quip out of a James Bond movie whereas all the other ones seem a bit more you know they were, you've got you've got like a murderous alien chef you've got a, a, a laser beam in a life support machine and you've got uh, a planet with uh, just vines, whereas the other one is just dumping some people into some acid. So I'm going to go with number three. I, I'm kind of inclined to agree with you, because the others definitely seem to have more story to them. Um, I, um, For me, it's either acid that, um, or... Mm, no, that sounds right. Uh, the butterfly shift sounds ludicrous, but that must be true. I mean, that's just, you know... Um, the paranoia I, I, I have created amongst you. <laughs> but the doctor can I, I, throw a butterfly was... over someone and then smother them with the gauze and think, oh, it's chloroform. Oh, no, it's cyanide. He's dead. <laughs> and then he says, you're just desserts because he's a chef and he just killed him. Yeah, I, 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 that is that. When I was reading, that was the most ludicrous. But I think it must be true again. I think you picked the most ludicrous things that you could find, uh, or in certain things. I think that just ha- that just has to be true. Um, I, I, my first, I'm going to go with my, my my first instinct, which is acid bad. It's not very exciting in terms of scoring. We're either both wrong or we're both right. So, but I, but I, that was my thought. Sue. Sue says, Sue says number two is the, the red Why herring. number two, Sue? Because why would you have a quip about a heart after you've just shot a laser beam at a life support? Okay, okay, fine, okay. That's her... her well, it's just, it hits him in the heart, but it sounds a bit... Uh, you know, they all sound crazy. Yeah, right. Okay, uh, uh, shall, we, shall we get on to the answer then? Yeah, yeah the answer is um, he did indeed smother a chef... With cyanide, uh, he did indeed drop poisonous vines onto a security chief at a prison planet, Varos. Um, But I I regret to report the doctor didn't shoot a VAR dictator's life support machine with a laser gun, and Quippy always thought he was heartless. Um, Rubbish quip. <laughs> yes, it's a rubbish quip. I, well, the implication was that he didn't. He needed a life support machine because he didn't have a working heart. Uh, <laughs> cl- clearly, I was I was being too subtle. I'm afraid yeah. he, re- he really did push two security guards into an acid vat and say, "Don't think I'll be joining you." That actually happened. That's in an episode. Wow. That's, uh, that's... wow. So Sue scores when a point. Briefly <laughs> played by George Lazenby. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go for something a bit more cheery after all that needless violence and death. You were right. Yay. Yes, Sue was right, everyone. Yes, well done. You get a point for that. Okay, 
infamous last words. The Sixth Doctor's last words, because he left the part abruptly, uh, weren't exactly uh, supposed to be last words, just last words of a story. So, can, so the last words the Sixth Doctor ever says on screen are, carrot juice, carrot juice, carrot juice. Those were his last words. But of course, they weren't his real last words, because you say the real last words are the things you say just before you regenerate. So I'm going to read out to you a series of lines said by the Doctor just before he regenerated. Uh, one of them is a uh, misattributed quote. Uh, please pick out which is the error. Your first quote, last words before the Doctor regenerated. Ah, yes. Thank you. It's good. Keep warm. Quote number two, last words said by the doctor. I don't want to go. Uh, next quote, um, a new body at last. And your final quote is, is this some sort of joke? No, I refuse to be treated in, what are you doing? No, stop, you're making me giddy. No, you can't do this to me. No, 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 no. No. <laughs> Which of those oh, okay. wasn't the Doctor's last I, words? Okay, well, the, obviously, I mean, the one, obviously, he is, I don't want to go. Uh, that, 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 I, that's obviously fairly recent, uh, Tenant, and I remember that one. Um, the first one sounds plausible. It's ridiculous, but it does sound plausible. I think probably could have said something weird like that. Um, and then I'm left with the last two. Um, the last one is absolutely ridiculous, um, but could well have happened. Um, uh, and the third one is really dull. And uh, did he have... Oh, my God. See, I, I don't know. I'm going to take a stab. My initial thought is number three. Uh, I think, because you uh, foolishly said used the word misattribution, Ian, that I'm going to go with number two, because I don't think that's actually true. I think that's a mistake that people misremember. Oh, oh, a controversial choice. Um, I, I did, in fact, throw that in as like the obvious one that you would all know. Well, that's kind of why I went with it because I was. Oh, I see. Maybe. There's been so much reverse psychology in my part. You thought I was trying to trick you. Yes. I, I'm sorry to well, report. I wasn't trying to trick you. I was throwing you a bow. <laughs> oh well. Okay. Let's just make this three choices to keep it easy. It's all right, you're still in the lead. Um, ah, yes, thank you, it's good, keep warm, are the last words of the first Doctor. They're usually, uh, the last Doctor's last words are usually misremembered to be, um, it's far from being all over. But then right. someone offers the Doctor a uh, his, his cloak, and he comments on putting his cloak on, and then he regenerates. Yeah. Um, a new body... At last is not the doctor's last words before he generated. It is yes! the it is the master's yes! last words before he regenerated. <laughs> I go all right. <laughs> and behold, we have Anthony Amy as the master. Um, and the uh, overly long uh, is this some sort of joke? No, refuse to be treated in. What are you doing? No, stop. No, you're making me get eat. No, you can't do this to me. No, 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 no. That is the second doctor's last words. As he is made to regenerate by the Time Lords. Ah. Ah. There you go. There you go. Um, anyway, that question's out of the way. Let's talk about the uh, glorious rebirth 
of Doctor Who in the yes. new glorious series with shiny whistles and glorious CGI and David Tennant's buttocks in, in tight trousers, which has attracted many a female fan to the series, for which I am thankful. Um, so, new series. Um, a great series or greatest series? What, what's your opinions? Uh... Sorry, the choices between a great series <laughs> and the greatest. Of course, series. I'm being facetious. Doctor Who's uh, kind of amazing storming return. It's interesting how much they were so cautious for the first series. They, they, you know, they honestly thought this could come back and it could die another death. Uh, but it came back and it was kind of huge. I think though they were very smart. I think they were very smart. They, they, because the first, the first uh, uh, the, the, of the new series. You know, it was very Earth-based. It wasn't too sci-fi. I mean, it obviously had sci-fi elements in it, but they were keeping it human-centric uh, because, you know, the whole thing was this was they were trying to create a new audience for it, as well as the fans, obviously, that would just eat it up anyway and get terribly excited. Um, so, you know, it had uh, an established actor with a bit of credibility. Um, it had, uh, uh, um, I say, things were kind of toned down. It was cautious and it, what it did was obviously then create, as it's gone on, it's, it's absolutely, you know, absolutely 100% sci-fi. You can go any planet, any kind of thing now, and and the audience will love it. But it, it was very careful, I think, uh, to create this new, this kind of new fan base. And then, and then it's kind of gone from strength to strength. I mean, I absolutely, uh, uh, in terms of, the, I mean, it's got a lot of love in it now, I think, which was lacking. Um, so that's what I enjoy about them. Um, I mean, obviously, there are because they're um, uh, they're not that kind of six episode format. You can't tell these long, elaborate stories that I remember fondly from the kind of seventies, the Tom Baker era. You don't have that kind of depth to it. But then, what you get instead is, you know, um, I mean, total surprise. A lot of different kind of things each season. You know, twelve different stories or eleven, twelve different stories set in all different kind of places. The variety is amazing. The, the budgets, you know, are good. Um, it looks spectacular, and I, I, I'm, you know, very excited by, you know, the reincarnation of it. Um, but I think it's been carefully kind of plotted so that it's, it's basically taken this audience, established it, and then now, you know, you can pretty much do everything, and and the the current audience, you know, will will be accepting of it. It's brought back sci-fi to, you know, a more an audience that wouldn't necessarily have been interested. You know, it's made it. A kind of a that family. I know it's not for everyone's taste, obviously, but it's broad, far broader than it that, than it used to be. It's kind of created that. Yeah, yeah. I think if I'm going to, uh, the thing about for me about it is that it exists in a space on it, uh, its own, which is both its strength and its weakness. So, like I say, it's the only thing that I would uh, call a mandatory viewing uh, as soon as it's aired. That's the only show that I really, you know, and I really like some shows, but I sat there quite happily while Supernatural Season 8 was airing on um, Sky Living and just let it, the whole series, accumulate into a big, you know, Supernatural Fest that we then went through in a week. Mm. Um, and, you know, I didn't feel compelled to watch on a weekly basis because I wanted to know what, what, what was happening. So that's, you know, its strength is that, you know, it's that. Unfortunately, that's also its weakness in that I don't think um, Doctor Who has much to do with... I mean, we haven't seen this sudden, uh, oh, we're going to commission 12 more series 
of various science fiction type things because Doctor Who is such a review. I mean, Doctor Who's had its spin-offs, obviously, uh, Torchwood and uh, the, the proper kiddie one, the Sarah Jane one. But um, that's those are Doctor Who spin-offs. It hasn't... It doesn't really do anything in the culture. It's Doctor Who. So Doctor Who is Doctor well, Who is the exception. I, I would disagree I... Um, to the extent that I think Doctor Who brought back drama to Saturday nights. And as a result, we had Robin Hood. We had... Oh, gosh. Excalibur. Merlin, didn't we? Oh, yeah, we had Merlin, yeah. yes. And we had uh, Prime, Prime, Prime Evil. Oh. Yes, Prime Evil. Yeah. And, now we have, and now we have Atlantis, of course. Yeah. Um, all of which are singularly terrible. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. It's like that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to say. That they can't. It's not about reproducing the magic. It's about that people seem to have this kind of thing where they can be confident to do something with who, and then you go and do. I mean, Robin Hood, for God's sake. I mean, we had. What's crazy about that is that I caught ten minutes of it once. And it seemed fairly dour and humourless. And then I thought back to the old Robin of Sherwood and the way that that, you know, where many people considered that to go up and jump the shark was when it started to get a bit mystical and ooey ooey. And that's like, but that would be really cool. Suddenly, you know, if you approached that and did it, but there's no confidence. When they do Robin Hood, it's got to be, you know, fairly boring. Keith Allen as the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's a drama about sort of Robin Hoody type things. There's no, you know, there's no gusto to it. And Merlin, I, where the hell they thought, because I did watch three episodes of that abortion. Yeah. And it was just like, where did you think that making all the characters that people love about the, the Arthurian mythos into complete assholes <laughs> was a really good idea for a kid's tea time drama? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it was. I mean, that's the thing, you know. Okay, so the BBC might, and that's the point. I think that even these things exist uh, in order to make Doctor Who look better because they're so terrible, uh, and to prove something about how. Oh, yeah, we can only do Doctor Who. Look, look, we can only do Doctor Who. If we try and do something else, it's terrible. So Doctor Who is it? So I, I would even say that's even corrosive. It's like they won't have something. That, you know, what, I mean, imagine that Doctor Who's had some competition. It, it, because it really doesn't. Mm. They tried back in the day. I mean, they, they brought out Space 1999 to be the Doctor Who killer. Uh, and it was Doctor Who was so terrified it moved itself with the schedule to avoid it. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is exactly the thing. I mean, that would be, in a way, that would be healthy. I, I, and I do think that it's it's... Odd that you know, because the only thing that I can really think is a contender, and it's not really because it's positioned itself completely outside. The only thing that's comparable is Misfit, but that's an adult-oriented, E4-centered, late-night comedy superhero drama. It's completely worlds away. It's not trying to compete with Doctor Who. It just exists in that thing. It's like a companion piece. And even Torchwood, that was supposed to be, you know, who it's more adult, um, you know. Nobody's try, nobody's trying to take it on, and I think that could be a problem in the long term. Is if nobody did because you know that kind of trying to be the best that you can be is is 
a driver for quality. And if you are at the top of the tree and nothing can take you down, eventually there's a danger of arrogance. Thankfully, it seems a little bit as if their stable of writers are in competition with one another to write the best episode of the season. And that is what's keeping it is that Gattis is fighting against, they're not really fighting, but they are, they want to know. Gattis wants to know his was better received than Gaiman's. And everybody wants to know that it's better than the, the guy who's in, currently in charge of all the stories. All of the writers want to know that their show went over a bomb. And that's what's keeping the show fresh. But yeah. it's not, that's not going to last forever. What do you think of the, the sort of differences between the, um, uh, Rusty Davis era and the Stephen Moffat era is though, if indeed there is any. Justin? Um, well, I think, um, obviously, Moffat, he's more, I think you get a sense of more of that, well, certainly early on, the kind of, like, science fiction ideas. He's, he's someone who is interested in pl- playing out some kind of very kind of strange and out there kind of things and take it to a limit. I think Moffat is much, I just that's Moffat, but I think Rumble T Davis, you know, he's kind of more, a bit more sentimental perhaps. Um, so he is a, more in with the human drama. Uh, and also some of his science fiction ideas are like really are kind of odd and they're not like, they're just kind of weird and strange and more, sit kind of somewhere. More magical than science fiction. Yeah, I think so. I think so. There's, it's, it's just, it's, you know, he's, he's, he doesn't get, to, he, he's obviously kind of madly into Doctor Who, but he doesn't seem to be someone who's like really up on their kind of geek science fiction ideas. He's, you know, I don't, he, he's just doing his own thing, which is quite whimsical. Whereas I think Moffat is definitely like, he is a science fiction writer. So he's looking for vehicles to kind of push his ideas that he's obviously kind of keeping up at what, Waking up in the middle of the night. You say Stephen Moffat is a science fiction writer. Previous Doctor Who is mainly known for writing Press Gang, and after that, a series of sitcoms. Well, you right. know, that, that yeah. was pretty much where he was. It wasn't until he did, oh, what's it called? Yeah, his modern take on Jekyll and Hyde. Which, right. I, which I didn't see. I don't know if you guys saw the Hyde, Jekyll and Hyde series he did. Oh, is that, did he write that? He wrote that. Oh, that's available on demand. I should watch that. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, there we go. Okay, yeah, it's available on one of the, the long no, he might not have, In his career, he might not have been prolific with kind of science fiction, but he's clearly someone who is interested in such ideas. Hmm. I think that right. This is the way that I I see it. The the the, the commonality of um, Moffat's career is that coupling and only joking had the sitcoms that had jokes. Uh, both on the surface and for the fan. That is, if you watched all the shows, things that he did in episode one would pay off in episode four. And so you'd have a punchline that seemingly came out of nowhere um, for someone who just watched that episode. Like, if you sat and watched a random episode with someone who'd watched the whole series, they'd go, ah, that's funny. you go, why is that funny? You know, Moffat is about constructing like a, a machine and that's what it, it's yeah. all about. And all of the Doctor's emotional beats, action beats, story beats in the Moffat era, in Moffat stories. The, thankfully, you know, they've still got the other writers. Like, Gattis has been a constant throughout, yeah. more or less. And so he always does a Gattis episode. And very wisely, they give people a wide thing with that. But when Moffat is doing the arc, he wants this Swiss clock arc and all of the beats 
come out of the Swiss clock. Yeah. And that's what he did when he was a writer under uh, Russell T. Davis, is that his yeah. little two-parters would do the same thing there. Russell T. Davis is a, a drama writer for television. He has schooled himself. I mean, obviously, one of the early things that people forget that he did was the Dark Season uh, children's serial, which was, like, born of his love for Doctor Who, where he was trying to do something like that in the 90s with Kate Winslet in, in Global Hypercolor. Um, yeah, so that's hilarious. Oh, well, that was that. Yeah, you're, you're not missing much, but that's where he <laughs> started. Then he did Queer as Folk and became massive. And I think he went through this thing of learning to be a television drama writer and knowing that television drama is centred around a character and or a set of characters and their problems and all the things that happen arise from opportunities to fence with that character's essence and being. So Doctor Who, across Eccleston and Tennant, was very much... Here's a thing with the Doctor. Here's a thing with the Companion. Here's yeah. a thing with their relationship. And the Aliens and all of the science fiction was designed to, to highlight that. And yeah. since Moffat's taken over, it's gone a little bit away from that, although Moffat is, comes from the same sort of... Like, so he's aware of that, and he knows he needs to do it. But he also wants to construct this elaborate Rube Goldberg device of a plot yeah. in which all of that stuff plays out, hence River Song. Yes. Yeah, it's indeed River Song. How do we feel about River Song? Because fans can be a bit divided about her. I don't have any problem with it. I think it's quite a quite an, to, to, to take to treat the, the Doctor as not just this kind of strange person who doesn't really interact with anyone. To introduce a character that actually has a history or a past um, is, I, I think, kind of an interesting take. And I think it's you know it kind of making taking the focus away from the Doctor all the time. Uh, is a really good thing, I think, for the story. I think it was, I, I thought it was kind of well handled and kind of certainly interesting the relationship between who she is and. Like, like so many things, uh, I thought it was a fine idea. I think it could have been handled better. I think yes. this is the story of me with Doctor Who. I like the things that are in Doctor Who. Often I think that they, they're kind of getting away with it by the skin of their teeth as opposed to really bravura. Like, if I contrast it with one of my favourite shows at the moment, Supernatural, everything Supernatural does, I'm like, they couldn't have done that any better. That was really good. That was a good payoff. I think that character arc really worked. I think this character is really coming into their own. And then you, But the, the, the great thing about Doctor Who, by contrast, is that you, they do stuff and you go, that's a really good idea. Not sure I would have done it like that, but hey, whatever. You know, and that's this, this kind of... But then the buffet keeps coming. Whereas in Supernatural, they're very ordered about what they want to do. Doctor Who just throws all this stuff at you. And, and uh, some, it's probably, it's, it's some probably a factor of the writing. You know, I mean, obviously, the, the, the American model is to have, like, a lot of writers all... Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, the strength of Doctor Who is this kind of, like, well, I'm doing this one, like, how yeah. I, I want to do it. Sue? I was in, actually very grateful for her. Um, I felt that, actually the show needed her in a lot of ways because they'd given him such a pathetic excuse for a companion. Um, I think Matt Smith needed her. I think he needed a female character that was kind of a little bit older than him and a little bit more abrupt with him and a little bit more. And I think River Song was the perfect companion, uh, companion piece to that. I think it was, a, I actually think it was a good idea. I'm not so sure her mother was so important and I'm kind of, 
still very disappointed with the whole Aiden Pond thing. Um, How are you but about, I think, about Clara, I though? I like Clara. I don't mind Clara at all. I think my issue with Amy Pond was she was supposed to be just there for eye candy and a sex symbol. The actress had no facial movements whatsoever. Um, I'm sorry, I, I could have put a tree there and she would have, you know what I mean, it would have given more facial expressions than that actress did. She And, you know, I just felt very much like she was overemphasised all the way through. It became all about her. And... Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, um, I think actually, if she just had been eye candy without any real thing, maybe that had been less of a problem. It's the problem was she was quite, the doctor was trying to find his way. Yeah. You know, and establish himself. And to be honest, someone after David Tennant has got a tough, this, you know, this that's what I'm saying. It's a bit of a nasty thing to do to Matt Smith, and, give and, him that. Uh, and so he, and, and unfortunately, yeah, she was a, she was too, I, she was too dominant. So I think early on, um, so I think the things they did, like, for instance, introduce Rory to kind of remove so it's not about just those two and her taking over Matt Smith and giving Matt Smith time to do stuff that's, on his own. But and that's, why, but that's they, why I was grateful for River, yeah, because as that's, that's, that's actually, but actually so, brought Matt Smith out of himself. Yeah, I think, so. I think so. was a better thing. I think, I, I think like, yeah, I God, we finally got an actress who knows how to work with Matt Smith. Yeah, I know. think to, to conclude, <laughs> the final hallmark, I would say, of the Moffat era is that he has completely diversified the idea. Like, when Russell T. Davis stuck with a thing that had been from the old era of Doctor Who, that the Doctor Who, that the Doctor had a companion, or maybe two companions, but they, that was that was the Russell companions. What we've noticed over Moffat's tenure is that, no, no, this week the Victorian people are going to be his companions mainly, and maybe he has one main companion, but actually this week River Song is going to be his companion. Or this week James Corden is going to be his companion. Yeah. And that that in fact although you know in the past we've experienced, you know, companions in a linear fashion, the doctor experiences I fancy hanging out with this companion this week. Yeah. And that's what happens. So that's an interesting thing. I think that's good actually. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I think so. So there we go. Yes. So that that, that have, we, have we more questions or oh, or are well, we questioning what is what is happening now? The questions. Well, uh, let's have one last question, maybe. Yes. Uh, yes. Round things off. Let's talk about the failed. Well, let's not talk about. Let's have some questions on the failed TV movie. Um, this is going to be a slightly different variation. Um, I'm going to talk about fan reactions to it. I'm going to talk fan outrage to it. Um, we got four, three, three things they are genuinely outraged by, and one thing I have completely made up. So, things fans were outraged about the Americanized Paul McGann TV movie from 1996. <clears throat> Number one, the TARDIS cloaking device. Um, this is how they described the communion circuit. They called it the, the uh, cloaking device. It's not a cloaking device. A cloaking device makes things invisible. What are you talking about? Uh, number two thing they were annoyed about. The Doctor is magic and can freeze time. Uh, he was cornered by some security guards and he was able to momentarily freeze time in a few seconds to allow him to sneak past some security guards. For goodness sake, he's a Doctor. He's a time traveler in space and time. He is not a superhero. What do you think you're doing? Number three, squeaky Daleks. The Dalek voices are all wrong and sound like the Smurfs. The director says he had no reference for how they just sound when he was mixing the show. He's British, by the way. For goodness sake, what do you mean you don't know what Daleks sound like? What do you mean you couldn't find out? What do you think Daleks sound like Smurfs? This is ridiculous. And lastly, the Doctor is half-human on his mother's side. What are you smoking? 
So, <laughs> of those four things, which one is uh, my manufactured fan rage, so we shall we say? Uh, I might have fallen completely in a trap here, but I can't, I cannot remember any reference to the Daleks in the McGann film. Are you talking about the movie? Are you talking about the movie? movie? The the pilot. The failed pilot from the 90s. Yeah, Yeah, I I don't remember any reference to a Dalek at all in that. It wasn't about the Daleks. It might have been at the beginning, in which case, and that's where I may have fallen into this trap, but I can't remember any reference, so I'm just going to have to go for that. Right, well, I'm I'm going to possibly uh, fall into the same elephant trap, but I seem to remember that it was uh, one Eric Roberts portraying perhaps the manliest incarnation of the master that was the villain in the Doctor Who yeah. pilot and not the Daleks. So I'm going the same way. Uh, I'm afraid that the Daleks did feature at the start of the start of adventure oh, where they exterminate the Daleks with their squeaky smurf voices. The chameleon circuit was referred to as a cloaking device and the Doctor also declared himself to be half-human on his mother's side. The Doctor, however, was not able to freeze time. Uh, oh, okay. I do have one last question, but so far down the rabbit hole, I think I might skip it oh, altogether. <laughs> so, at that round, you both score an additional zero points. Yeah. So, to tally up our grand scores, well, oh, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, in, in reverse order, we have Sue, who only volunteered to answer one question, but was entirely correct when she did. With one I think that makes her... The, 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 the best players. Well, she has the best ratio. She scored 100%. Yes. Um, in, in second place, we have Justin with an incredible two questions correct. Uh, yeah. but, but perhaps a wheezing, groaning into the lead with the sound of the TARDIS is Leo with four points. Wow, so well, there, there we have it, ladies and gentlemen. Whew. So, fiftieth. Now, watch this TV movie to see this Dalek reference because I only saw it about a month ago, and I still uh, have no memory of it, it featuring Daleks at all. Uh, I didn't. I, I've seen it and I've I've avoided it, but I may watch it again now for well, nostalgia. If, if I have done anything this uh, this podcast, I sincerely hope it isn't making you want to go watch the Paul McGann movie again. I, I, I have to say, bad ending. When, I actually, when they actually broadcast that in the UK, I watched it and I quite enjoyed it. Uh, parts of it I loved. I have to say, I remember getting very excited when looking at the uh, the production. Uh, of the set, and I, I have to say, it's my favourite looking TARDIS. Mm. I absolutely love the kind of Jules Verne wood panelling thing. I thought that was brilliant. Um, it's, it's, it's a bit, it's a, having seen it recently, um, it actually had more in it than I remember. remember. Um, it's okay. I don't think it's awful. I certainly, ter- I think, uh, Paul McGann is brilliant. Yes, yeah. I, would, I mean, I don't uh, think. I even at the time when I saw it saw it as a pilot for a television show, and I said I thought as pilots go, you know it could go it could have gone somewhere, but you know there we go. But actually, probably the places it would have gone are not the places it's gone now, so we're probably no. better off in the long run. Oh yeah, no, I think so. Okay. There um, we go. Yes, that, that was yeah. Doctor Who. Yes, are we hooed yeah. out? Is everybody? I, I, I feel hooed out, and I'm definitely a Who fan. But yes, th- th- thank you all for your indulgences and for putting up for it for a quiz which you could not possibly have survived uh, <laughs> nonetheless i was darkly entertained and believe me i spared you a headache with the last question <laughs> which was concerning fan theories regarding doctor who i mean right. okay, yeah, you would have been bereft but some of those theories 
<laughs> it needs to be read out on radio. Anyway, uh, yes, so I'm excited for the 50th that's coming up very shortly. Yeah. Best to get our podcast in before the 50th comes out, because two to four, I expect the Doctor Who fans will hit the forums to talk about how disappointed they were. Firstly, I'm, I'm very excited that it's going to be Moffat who's writing the 50th. I think we need a timey-wimey story uh, to, 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 for the 50th. I think it just, just has to be. Yeah. It's going to be great to see David Tennant back again. Um, yeah. And yeah, the whole buzz and the fact they've held back on the publicity. We're only today going to be getting the official trailer. It's only two weeks yeah. away. I um, mean, they've really yeah. held back. So yeah. good for them. So yes, I'm sure we'll do say something afterwards. Maybe. Anyway, yes. the long delayed Doctor Who podcast has finally happened. And at the end of the day, hey. I feel like I've just abused you all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think it was okay. I think we're all right. Um, I think if we were going to do a Doctor Who podcast, this is the Doctor Who podcast we should have done. And if we had a TARDIS, we could go back and check that this was the best of all possible worlds. But as it is, I'm just going to have to take that on faith. So, uh, well, yes. One place you can go to complain about the the ridiculous length of the self-indulgent episode is our <laughs> Facebook page. Please go there and like us. We put our podcasts up there. Occasionally, we put links there. Uh, it's our community hub. We want to grow. Please go there, go there, go there. Like. But podcasts are what it's all about. For that, you can go to the podomatic.com page. So please point your browsers to Revenge of the 80s Kids. That's 80s and letters. That's E-I-G-H-T. Uh, eskids.podomatic.com please go there and subscribe to us using your podcast aggregator of your choice or download directly to your computer for dark reasons of your own our old uh, podcasts are archived on Leo's blog which you can find at uh, leostayworthford.com um, yep that's, that'll get you there and yes some of the very oldest ones because we haven't to clear space up ahead to put up the next one I think I'm probably going to have to clear some space for this one, because uh, it's going to be quite big. Um, so, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that, that's where you can find that. Oh, yes, and also this year I am doing a fairy tale uh, serial, uh, which I uh, which is will be concluding in a, in a mere few weeks, being wow. as Christmas is just around the corner, um, with, a, with a big, spectacular finale, um, which I've, I've more or less written. The last two episodes I will have to write in December because this month is National Novel Writing Month and I am therefore nationally writing a novel. Um, and uh, that the Bridge Santels have been known to be illustrated in the past by... Uh, well, that by, by me. Uh, and um, you can see examples of uh, that and other, and other pieces of work on my DeviantArt page uh, under my full name, uh, Justin Wyatt. Well, there we have it. Um, when should we our three incarnations meet again and what should we talk about next week I suppose the 80s is, should be back on the so, cards so, yes. so yes. we're doing the Sex and the City quiz next week uh, no we're random numbers and give you the answers before, before <laughs> that you can do that all automatically <laughs> I feel like I've, I've stuck you both in lift and forced you to play games of I Spy for two hours. But I, I have enjoyed. It, oh, say, thank you. You're very gracious. I've I've, miserably, but I have enjoyed at least trying to. <laughs> I've had a whale of a time, and I, I think this was a very different Doctor Who yeah. podcast. So yes, there we go. Yes. Thank you, Ian, for your, for your fantastic questions. There's obviously a lot of work towards that, so thank you. Yes. And uh, as we say, a return to the 80s shortly. But yes. Now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Farewell, my friends.